I want to pray before we get started. And as you know, uh, <clears throat> our 4th of July occurred this weekend, kind of uneventfully, uh, unless you heard the fireworks, but uh, we're all locked in with the COVID stuff. So not a lot of things took place, but some did. But I just want to pray a special prayer as we begin this morning. And I want to lift up our nation. So join me as I do that. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we are humbled by your love for us, your grace, your power, your mercy. And Father, I thank you for, uh, for Lynette's mother and uh, the healing that you've given her, and I pray continued blessings on her. Protect her, Father, and keep her safe. And Father, I pray for our nation. I pray because, Lord, we are hurting. We're in a lot of trouble here. This nation is heading in a direction that none of us like. And, Father, we're just asking that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of men. That, Father, you'd work with us, your church, first. And that, Father, you can turn this nation around. May we always be the testimony that you want us to be, the lighthouse that you need us to be. And, Father, I pray that you would guard us and protect us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. When you um, think of God, if you had to think of one word to describe God, what one word would you use? Now think about it for a moment because um, you only get one word. Some of you may think of the word grace. Some may think of mercy. Some may think of God's wrath. That's the word that you would use. Vengeance, justice, things like that. The Old Testament, if you go through the Old Testament, you certainly get the idea that God is certainly vengeful and, and, and expresses his wrath throughout the Old Testament. But when you get into the New Testament, you find a different portrayal of God and how God is, is seen and um, how he's written about in the scriptures. And that is this, that the one word that best describes God and who he is, is the word love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, whoever does not Love does not know God, because God is love. Now, are all the other words descriptive of God? Yes. I mean, there are, there are instances in the Scripture where you see God's wrath and God's vengeance, and those are things that he does in response to man. But if you want to talk about God in his essence and who he is at his very core, then John is trying to convey that to you and me. And he says this, that God is love. That's who he is at the very core of his being. Now, when you search the Bible, you find examples of that all throughout the Bible. And what I want to do today is I'm pulling out six snippets from the Bible that I'm calling love scenes because they are scenes that depict the love of God for us more than any others. Um, there are, like I said before, many, many scenes that you could have pulled out of Scripture. But I'm pulling out these six. I'm going to go through them quickly. They're not going to take a lot of time. But I believe that they demonstrate God's love for you probably more than you realize, more than you ever thought about before. And as you read through these with me and we talk about them for a moment, you'll come to realize what I'm talking about when I say that they are examples of God's love for you. And maybe you've never thought about these particular occurrences, instances, the verses that I'm going to show you. You think, well, I've never really thought of those as depicting love. But really think about this today. Follow along with me. Very quickly, six scenes, calling love scenes. What is the first love scene that we see in the Bible that depicts God's love? Well, it's the creation of man. Now, what I want you to do is think about this. 
We can talk about <clears throat> the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve, but I want you to think about it in terms of your creation. If you were Adam, because you could have very easily been Adam or Eve, any one of us could have been the first ones. It's just the way that God chose to do it. But if it had been you in Adam's place, this is as true of you and me today as it would be if we had been the very first ones ever created. So look with me as we go back now and look into this incident of the creation. One verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, can you just imagine this with me? Okay, now, this is not, what I'm going to share with you is not in Scripture, but it's just your imagination, if you will, or at least my imagination. Think what it must have been like in the Garden of Eden when God himself bends down and begins to play in the dirt. When God himself begins to mold and to shape the figure of a man. Think what the, the angels must have been thinking. All of a sudden they're looking at this and they're thinking to themselves, what in the world is he doing? Why is he on his knees? Why is he playing in the dirt? What is he up to? Because they had no idea. Then all of a sudden, God bends over and as if he's giving mouth to mouth to this figure of dirt. He breathes into the mouth of this image that he's created. And all of a sudden, it comes to life. And all of a sudden, it has life. And all of a sudden, it begins to speak. And there's Adam, naked and unashamed and pure and just as, as, as loving and a relationship as you'll ever see. And you have to ask yourself this question. And here's the question that I want you to ask yourself concerning your, you as well. And that is this. Why did God create Adam? What was in it for him? Why would God create man knowing all of the mess that would be created because of man, knowing all the trouble that would come his way because of man, knowing all the heartache and the hurt and the pain and the suffering that we would cause him? Why would God create you? Why? Well, here's the answer to this first scene. This is what I want you to see. And that is this, that because God is love, He created an image or an object to love. Because God is love, He created an object that He could love. And this is the way the Bible portrays this. There's no other reason why God would create a human being except for the purpose of loving that person. And this is what it is talked about when it says that God is love, because God is that at his very essence. And God had the angels, and they failed him, you know, but there was still something lacking. And God out of love created man. God out of love created you, because God needed an object to display his love. And that's the reason he created us. So we look at this first scene, the very first one talked about in the Bible where man comes on the scene and God loves him. And as you look at the relationship between the two, that's what it was. Every day in the garden they would walk together. Every day they would talk. God created Eve for the man because he loved them both. And they came together. And he, he loved them. And, and here's what we don't know, in all honesty, we don't know how long they lived there in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But for all the length of time that that happened, for as long as they were there, God loved them and displayed that love in many different ways. 
Here's the second scene as we move through here. We're going to pull this all together here in a moment. The second scene is the fall of man. You know the story. The serpent came into the garden. The serpent tempted Eve. She partook of the fruit, gave it to Adam. And then all of a sudden, the Bible says that their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. And all of a sudden, they knew what guilt and sin was because they had now experienced it. They had now partaken of it. All of a sudden, God's plan is ruined. God's purpose for creating man is now ruined. He wanted an object to love, and now because of the sin, God can't love him the way that he wants to. God can't display the love. God can't wrap his arms around him and walk with him and fellowship with him because God, being holy and righteous, now can't associate with him. So there's a problem, see, that the sin is created. And you know what happened after that. The fall, the judgment, uh, God displaying all the things that uh, we still struggle through and suffer with today. All the things that came around or came about because of it. Man acted just like Lucifer when Lucifer decided to rebel against God and all of the mess that was created from that. Now here God's creation, his perfect creation, has done the very same thing. And because God is love, he refused to give up on man. That's what I want you to see. Because God is love, here's man has turned against God, and by he has every right to destroy him, but he didn't. Because you see, in spite of all the things that had taken place there in the garden, and in spite of all the disappointment and the heartache, God still loved his creation. He still loved him. And God was not going to give up on him. In Genesis chapter 3, let me read you verses 21 through 23. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man is now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Now there's the judgment. God, because of the fall, he has to leave the garden and so on and so forth. Now notice in here the first thing that God does. Here's Adam and Eve. They are naked. Now they're ashamed because they understand that. And God, in his love for them, kills an animal. And from all indications, this is the first one that has ever been killed. God kills the animal, takes the skins, and covers their shame because he loved them. God pronounces judgment on them and how things would be, but then he does something else too. He banishes them from the garden. He says, you can't stay here any longer. Now watch this, okay? Why? Why can't they stay in the garden any longer? Well, there's this reference here. He says, God is saying, the man will now become like one of us. The us is plural. What you're going to find in the Old Testament is a lot of the references to God are plural because of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all there at the beginning, all actively a part of creation. And so they're going to become like one of us. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, here's what he means. He said they're going to eat of the fruit of eternal life and they're going to live forever in this condition. Now, the tree of knowledge was the one they were told not to eat of. 
He said, of every other tree you can eat, but not this one. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that they were never allowed to eat of the tree of life. Now, most scholars believe this. They believe that they had been eating the tree of life all along. And it was the tree of life that sustained them. It was the tree of life that kept them from dying. It kept them from deteriorating. It kept them from growing old. We don't know how long they lived in the garden. We really don't. But I'm going to bet you it was longer than what we imagined. In all of that time, they ate of the tree of life. And what he's saying is this. If we don't banish him from the garden, he will continue to eat of it and he will live on. Now watch. Then when God banished them from the garden, they began to die. That was death. From that point on, they were separated from this tree of life. They could no longer eat of it. And physically, they began to die. 930 years Adam lived. Now, again, we don't understand. We don't understand if that was from the moment he was created in dust or from the moment he left the garden. But his body is beginning to die. And here's what I want you to see. That the act of banishing him from the garden was an act of love. Because God said, I don't want you to live forever like this. You're going to now experience pain you've never experienced before. Hurt. People are going to take advantage of you. People are going to hurt you. People are going to humiliate you. and everything. You're going to have to work hard. And you're going to be struggling with disease and, and whatever. Disappointment in life. I don't want that for you forever. That's part of what is going to happen because of the curse on you, but I want that to an end. So I'm banishing you from the garden where there is life and putting you out into the world where you will die eventually. That's an act of mercy. It's an act of love. We don't often think of it that way. But there's the scene there in the garden as God does that. And everything is about his love for man. Even that act was out of love. So let's quickly move to the third scene. The third scene is, uh, oh, we're going to jump through a, a long period of time. And we come now to the conception, now the conception of Christ. Not the birth, the conception. This is what we hardly ever think about. We all celebrate the birth at Christmas. But have you ever thought about the conception nine months earlier? What took place there? How did that happen? Let's go to heaven again. Let's go to the scene in heaven hours before Jesus would become an embryo inside of a young virgin girl. This whole process is up for debate and discussion. How did this ever happen? We don't know. The Bible says that he was virgin born. A young virgin is implanted. The Bible says the Holy Spirit did it and implanted this embryo inside of her. Let's go now to heaven, and we're a couple of hours from that taking place. A couple of hours away from Jesus becoming an embryo and going through this whole process of becoming human in order that he can die on a cross. So there we are in heaven. There's tension in heaven. The angels are puzzled. Something's going on, but they don't understand it. The Bible tells us they were they searched trying to understand this whole process, and they can't. 
So there they are wondering. Everybody's quiet. And over in the corner, the father and the son are talking. And Jesus is asking his father, Lord, is there not some other way? Father, can we not do this another way? No, we can't. He asked, Father, what's it like to become human? We don't know. We've never been human. What is it like to die? Don't know. What is it like to take the sin of the world? I'm going to become sin. What are you going to do then? All of this is new. And Jesus is agonizing over it just like he does in the garden. Fathers are not another way. No, this is the only way. Man can't pay for it himself. Man can't get himself out of this mess, so we've got to get him out. Why did he do it? Because God is love. And because he is love, he provided a substitute to take your place. This is the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose of this plan being set into motion is because God loves you. The same creation that turned its back on him in the garden, the same creation that he wouldn't give up on, the same creation that he's now providing a sacrifice for, out of love for you. You see, we always think about the judgment, and we think about God's anger and God's wrath, because at times that's displayed in the Bible. But we very rarely ever look at the scenes of Scripture and the things that occur and the stories that are told to us and the accounts that are given, and we think to ourselves, boy, these are examples of how God loves us. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, look at this. He says, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Now watch this. He said, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, when God the Father said to His Son, you have to become human. You have to provide a body, flesh and blood. You have to become the sacrifice. You have to take their place. You have to bear their sin. You have to die in their place. When He did that, it was all because of His love for us. It wasn't because God said, gee, you guys love me. I'm going to forgive you. No, they didn't. And i got to confess, neither did I before I came to him. But out of love, God said, I'll take care of it. And so he sent his sacrifice, his son. And the Bible tells us each one that when Jesus died for us, he rose again for our sins. And when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ and accept it by faith, we have eternal life. It's a free gift. It is given to us. It is free. That's what salvation is. And so this is an example of God demonstrating His love for you when He's put His Son into this world through a virgin, Mary. But now we're going to jump ahead about 34 years to Calvary. That's the next scene. And it's actually the night before The next day he would be taken and crucified, but Jesus once again now is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is in prayer, and again he's praying the same thing that I believe he probably, again, the scene in heaven was just an illustration. 
but possibly could have been praying or asking of his father before. Can this cup not pass from me? And there he is, the Bible tells us, he's praying and he's sweating like drops of blood and he's in agony. You've got to wonder, why? What was it all about? This is the God of the universe. What was he so afraid of? Well, I believe basically it was taking on the sin of the world. For a holy, righteous God to take on the sin is what horrified him. And to, be, to, to understand the significance of this, that he became a rapist, he became a murderer, he became a whoremonger, he became a, a, a thief, he became all of the things that you and I are guilty of, he became that day hanging on the cross because God took all of that, our sin, and placed it on him. He became that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He became sin for us. There's, that is significant because it's not just a theological idea. He literally did that. He literally became that for us. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to this passage. It's in verses 5 through 8. Now, this is Paul talking. Here's what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he's saying he's, he's God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't hold on to it. He was willing to humble himself and, and come down here. He says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here he is. He, he didn't want to do it because of the fear of the sin, but yet he did it that night in the garden. Lord, whatever your will is, then I'm going along with that, and your will be done. And he gets up and he leaves and he goes and he's arrested and he's taken to Calvary. That day, hanging on the cross, the Father forsook him. The Father turned his back on him because he had become sin. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In that instance, God had to turn his back on his son because all of a sudden, everything that we were, his son has now become. And God the Father turned his back because a holy, righteous God had to. How do you think he felt? How do you think he felt hanging on the cross? First time in his life, he had ever been alone now. And at that moment, he was all alone. How do you think the angels felt? Now, here's what I believe, okay? Now, here, I'm just giving you images. I, these are things that you have to think through, okay? I believe that day at Calvary, all of the forces of hell were gathered to that place. I believe that all of Satan and all of his demons had left all of the things they were doing everywhere they were doing it, and they were all gathered there that day because they said, we've got him. 
I believe that all the angels of heaven were gathered there that day as well. And they all watched. And I believe that when God the Father turned his back on his son, they all looked at him and said, what is he doing? Why? What is going on? Because they didn't understand it. Why did he do it? Because God is love. And because God is love, he chose you over his son. He chose you over his son. See, I think sometimes we become calloused. We become callous to the truth of what Scripture says and what has really taken place. That God the Father would turn his back on his own son because he loves you. We don't realize the significance of that. The next scene is the ascension. The Bible tells us that 40 days later, after the resurrection, for 40 days he walked on this earth. He was seen by over 500 people in his resurrected body. And at the end of that, he ascended into heaven after having given the disciples the great commission he left. Can you imagine? Now just imagine again with me what this must have been like, all right? His work is finished. He's ascending into heaven. And he enters into heaven. To what? I believe that there was a triumphal entry. I believe that there's this enormous corridor, this pathway, this street, if you will, leading all the way down to God's throne. And gathered on every side were the angels of heaven. There was shouting, there was singing, there was excitement. No tension here, only excitement. Because now the angels are beginning to understand what has happened. And beginning to understand the plan of God. And they put a robe on him. He heads down toward the throne of God. And the Bible says that he takes his place at the right hand of the Father. And that all of a sudden now, He assumes a new role. Now watch. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, verse 34. He's talking about this salvation. And he says this. He says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Please don't miss what this is saying. Who in the world, Paul says, is ever going to accuse you of your sin? Who in the world is ever going to say in the presence of God that you're a despicable person? Who is ever going to say in the presence of God that you deserve hell? Who? He said, nobody. Why? Because Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for you. That every accusation that comes from the mouth of Satan, the Lord Jesus says, it doesn't matter. My blood has covered it. They're free. It's done. 
Because God is love, He will never listen to another accusation against you. Wow. Never. Now, does God chasten His children? Yes, but we're talking about accusations, condemnation. This is what Paul is saying. Who's going to do that? Given the reality of who Jesus is, what He's done, and where He's sitting now, there's nobody. Here's the final scene, and that is when you and I die. When we die. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this. He said, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He said, I would rather be out of the body and at home where I belong with Jesus. He's saying there's only two options here. You're either in the body or you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we look at that, the whole idea of death, and we don't fully understand or appreciate it. We don't appreciate it as God's escape from this world. We don't appreciate it as God's redeeming and and, and uh, saving us out of this world and all that this world has to offer. The more this world is heading in the direction that it is, the more I want to leave. I don't know about you, but I'm about tired of it. At times we find ourselves getting angry at God because we lose our spouse or children or loved ones. We get angry at God and we begin to think, how, how can you say you love me? We need to understand how God views death. Psalms chapter 116 verse 15 says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His faithful servants. Precious? Precious? Yeah. How can it be precious? Because we're going home. And what God originally intended for you and me, an object to love, someone to spend time with, to be with, we go home to that. So yeah, it is precious. I think sometimes we have this image that we pass from this life and we just sort of quietly enter into heaven and we'll start getting involved in the, the life of heaven, whatever that is like. I don't think so. You see, I have another image in my mind. I have another image of another triumphal entry. If God has gone to this extent and to this trouble to redeem you and me, we're not just going to slide in without somebody knowing it. I believe with all my heart that each one of us is gonna, are going to have a triumphal entry into heaven where the angels of heaven are rejoicing over you and me, praising God for redemption and salvation and rejoicing with us. And we see there on the sides of, of those that are rejoicing are our loved ones. That child that you lost, your parents, your spouse, they're all there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said this. 
He said, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. I don't know what heaven is going to be like. But God said it's beyond your wildest dreams. Why? Why did God do it? Why is heaven like that? And why does he want me there? The answer is this. Because God is love. And because he is love, he wants you with him forever. He wants you there forever. Because you see what happened in the garden that distorted his plan. He's now finishing. Calvary is the deciding factor. And what was lacking all of these years now comes to its culmination. It's provided in heaven. That home, that fellowship, that relationship that God wants. All of these scenes in heaven, or not in heaven, but as we've looked at them, we've learned that God created an object to love, that he refused to give up on us even when we failed him, that he provided a substitute to take care of our failure. He chose you over his son, and he's not going to listen to any accusation against you, and he wants you there with him forever. Don't you dare say he doesn't love you. Ever. Some of us go through hard times in this life. We grieve over the loss of loved ones and we blame God. Say, you don't love me because you did this to me. We suffer through persecution and heartache and abuse from people that do ungodly things. And we say, God doesn't love me because you let that happen to me. He's already told you and me that in this world you're going to have trouble. In this world people are going to hurt you. But he said, don't worry about that. Just understand the truth of what I've told you. And see, this is a challenge to you. Don't ever let your circumstances dictate what you believe or think or feel about God. Because God has to, my, my concept of God has to come from the truth of Scripture. And everywhere I look in Scripture, I find this truth over and over and over again. That God loves me more than I ever imagined. And the sooner you and I come to grips with that and believe it and understand it, then we begin to look at the things that happen in this life in a whole different light. And we don't live life as victims and woe is me, nobody loves me. We understand that God does love me. He's displayed it all through time. And when I get out of this rotten world that he's got me in, I'll understand that fully. But until then, I live by faith. And I live by believing that the God of the universe loves me. And he loves you. And if you were the only one living on this earth, he would have still done everything that he did just for you. That's how much he loves us. Don't ever doubt that. Your life can change just like that by simply changing the way you think. Because up until this point, maybe you have thought that, well, God doesn't love me because I'm a, 
a terrible person, things that I've done, my background, my history. Who's going to bring an accusation against you? If God isn't happy with your life, then God will discipline you and deal with you. That's between you and God. But don't you ever think that God doesn't love you or that God loves you less than somebody else. If he has not displayed that already, then I don't know what else he could do. You and I have to believe it and we have to understand it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's promise to you. You may be sitting here today and you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, if you only knew what I had done, preacher, you wouldn't be telling me that God loves me. Brother, I don't care what you've done. God loves you. And he sent his son to prove it. And the only thing that he asks of you is that you put your faith in him. That you come to the point in your life where you understand it, you believe it, you accept it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And maybe you're here this morning and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to do that right now, right there where you sit. Just turn to God and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. I believe it and I'm trusting you to save me. For all the rest of us, we need to be thanking God for his love in spite of life. Now see, this is the key. In spite of everything going on in your life, in spite of the COVID, in spite of sickness, in spite of death, in spite of handicap, in spite of abuse, in spite of everything, thank you, God, that you love me. Because if I know that, I can face anything in this life. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, Father, we are humbled. We're humbled by just how much you love us and the things that you've done to prove that. Father, forgive us for not appreciating it. Forgive us, Father, for doubting it. Forgive us, Father, for living like people that are just whining and crying over things that don't go our way. Help us to turn around and begin to see that in spite of that, we believe the Scriptures we trust you and we walk with you. Father, I pray for each and every one of us. Father, you would walk with us as we go through this life and guide and direct us, lift us up, encourage us, reassure us. Father, I believe with all my heart that the things in this world are going to get worse. And Lord, we need your presence. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us, to encourage us, to give us hope. Lord, I pray for that. Father, bless us because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.